The Harvard Kennedy School's adoptive leadership courses are internationally renowned as, quote, life-changing experiences. But some students say that the class goes too far and leaves lasting emotional damage. This week on News Talk, one of our reporters joins us to talk through the class and just how it's impacting students. From Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank Joe. Content warning. This episode includes mention of suicide. Hi, my name is Asher J. Montgomery, and I cover the Harvard Kennedy School for the Crimson. Thank you so much, Asher, for joining us. Tell us where the story begins. The story begins with uh, Susana Orego Viejas. Um, she grew up in Colombia during a time that was uh, very tumultuous. They, they had a lot of um, drug cartel issues. And out of these like childhood experiences, she you know decided that she wants to help people and decided to pursue medicine. And that's what brought her to the Harvard Medical School. She's passionate about a number of issues, but one of them being child protection, pediatrics. And that is why she decided to pursue a child protection certificate from the School of Public Health. That required that she take a leadership class, one of the options being the exercising leadership course at the Harvard Kennedy School. Exercising leadership, MLD 201, has international fame, at least, amongst alum at the Kennedy School and all of those that they talk to. And they tell people that they need to take this course. It's quite unique. But for Viejas, she actually hadn't heard any of this. What she did come across, though, was the Canvas page for the course which included a mental health resources document that called the class transformative, but said that the transformation can induce personal or emotional pain. It seemed to her they wanted to make that clear. There would be talking about traumatic events or potentially polarizing topics in class. So this was a little concerning. On the first day of class or sometime, sometime in the beginning of class, they had to sign a non-disclosure confidentiality agreement that they weren't going to speak about any of the details of their classmates outside of the class. This was to protect the privacy of the students to create a trusting atmosphere in the class. But, you know, this this is something she hadn't ever done for a class before. So Susanna, coming into this class, expected to practice leadership, to, you know, work on cases and talking about different leaders. And that was just not the case. Susanna expressed to me that she felt like she was part of an experiment during this class. She found it like being in the Hunger Games. For instance, a professor might start off the course saying, the women in this class last time, they didn't speak very much. Why might that be the case? In this particular instance, one of the students said, oh, well, why don't the women just talk more? And that that could be offense to, taken to offense by some people. And so another member of the class said something like, well, we don't want to talk more because you've just made that comment. It's patronizing. From there, tensions get more heated and they're like personally attacking each other at this point. Um, and the professor might say something about that person's background. Like, why might they make a comment that, oh, well, just the women should just talk more then. So maybe like... The professor's looking at their background or ask the class to consider 
what happened in their lives that might make them say something like that. It's, it's all learning from experience in ways that can feel offensive. The idea is that in analyzing the behaviors of students during class, we can understand where people are coming from in the decisions that they make, that we can learn leadership in this way. A lot of students coming in know this. Um, Susanna did, did not. She's not a Harvard Kennedy School student, so this wasn't like an atmosphere that she had been used to. Susanna told me that this was stressful for her and that Mondays and Wednesdays, which are the days that she had her class, became her overwhelming days. Initially, she found these arguments as annoying, more than upsetting. And it wasn't until later when topics were diving into racial, gender, Ukraine-Russia war, the Israel-Palestine, when emotions really fueled these arguments and things got a little bit violent. What it did for Susanna, she actually had a nightmare that someone was going to bring a gun to class. And this was, she thinks, incited by the kind of violence and overwhelmingness that she felt while attending the class. Susanna does come from Colombia, and there's this idea of America that it's possible to be part of a mass shooting here, given our numbers and statistics. And I think that recently to this nightmare, there was a shooting at the University of Virginia. And, you know, this combined with the nature of the class led to her having this nightmare. So she would sit near the exits, near the windows, just in case she needed to leave. This is a sort of an, an anomaly reaction. A lot of other students did mention that, that the class became extremely emotional, that it felt violent to them and they felt like they were being attacked. Some students say that they didn't feel safe speaking in class or participating because of the reaction it might elicit from other students. And that caused this sort of chaotic, overwhelming feeling for some of the students in the class. So at the heart of this all, then, is the professor who is facilitating an environment that he claims will strengthen and students' leadership skills, but that some students have experienced as chaotic, violent. You've mentioned to me that MLD 201 has three sections taught by three different lecturers, Ferrari Chapungo, Timothy O'Brien, Hugh O'Darity, and there's also a 10-day course taught in the winter session called MLD 202, taught by the very founder of this entire course and pedagogy, Ronald Heifetz. He's the one who's recruited and trained the three other lecturers over the past couple years, could you tell us a little bit about how Heifetz developed this course and just how it's ended up at HKS? He, along with some other people, Martin Nalinsky, who was the former representative for Massachusetts, a friend of his, Riley Cinder, uh, developed this course a long time ago, almost 40 years ago, beginning initially when he graduated from the MPA program at the Harvard Kennedy School in 1983. Prior to this, he actually received his doctorate from the Harvard Medical School. Originally, he was studying surgery, and then he eventually ended up getting his degree in psychiatry, and then decided to pursue leadership and uh, came to the Harvard Kennedy School. And in 1983, he continued to develop ways to teach leadership. It was previously conceived of as an unteachable skill. It was seen as something innate. There were certain people who were better fit to be leaders. And Heifetz didn't see it this way. He thought leadership could be taught. He and a couple of colleagues got together. They had some music nights where they were talking and discussing, and they formulated this idea of how leadership could be taught. In that way, Heifetz class filled kind of a gap. And it, you know, it continues to fill a gap. There's no classes like this at other schools of similar stature. Graham Allison, the founding dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, 
said people criticized him for bringing in Ronald Heifetz. He said to me in an emailed statement, quote, who would let a recent MPA with a degree in psychiatry and a violin try to teach leadership to adults in the HKS X programs? And what he means by that is Heifetz was very young, very bold with his ideas. They were essentially like revolutionary to the Harvard Kennedy School. And they came in at a time when the Kennedy School was going through sort of an identity crisis. While Allison did hire Heifetz, he was stepping down from Dean in uh, 1989, and they were looking for a replacement dean. And people were asking the question if the Kennedy School was going to be a place that continued to create these good, effective, kind of middlemen bureaucrats, or if it was going to become a place that created bold, strong, forceful leaders. So it's at this transitional period within the Harvard Kennedy School's history when Heifetz is coming in as a young instructor whose ideas are revolutionary for the school and whose very hiring is controversial within the school as well. Curious what he does uh, upon his appointment and what he does in the three decades following. Heifetz set out to prove that the course that he had developed was successful. And to do this, he published a, a couple of studies The main one is this initial study from what he said his early days in 1989, talking about this adaptive leadership framework. What the study does is it walks through the components of the course, which include the discussion-based lectures where students are challenged, and then two, a leadership failure case where students in small groups analyze a time in which they failed professionally, and this is potentially destabilizing. At least that's what the, what the study says. But the idea is that students will learn from this failure case that the other students, too, will learn how to analyze what factors in someone's life allow them to make these decisions, and then what different ideas and identities are brought into these groups. So the study sends surveys to hundreds of students who'd taken the course Um, in the prior year. And what's interesting is it lays out this idea about the course that really like parallels what I've witnessed or observed in my conversations with Kennedy School students over 30 years later, which is that a large, significant majority of students have taken this class find it transformative and life-changing for the better and that they will go on to recommend this course. But the study also found that faculty and teaching assistants make mistakes sometimes and that they may challenge students insensitively. This is a quote from the study, three to four percent remain upset. And that's over a year later. Susanna wrote about this in her final paper. She didn't feel like the teaching staff was uh, equipped to handle the strong personalities in the way that the course was designed. So we know now that this is the the way the course is currently taught and has been taught for some while now. Where do we go from here? What are students calling for and where do we move next? What different groups on campus have been asking for in the the last year is if these classes are going to exist at the Kennedy School, which many of them believe that they should still exist, then there needs to be the backing necessary to conduct a course like this safely. What this looks like is more support from CAMS, Counseling and Mental Health Service. We saw... If you you go back a few uh, podcast episodes from the demands from the Soul Keepers, many of whom took MLD 201, 202, who who even found the experience beneficial. But what they're asking for is for teaching assistants to be trained. Another suggestion was that students take a required uh, mental health 
module over the summer so that they can help their peers. So one big piece of any conversation surrounding mental health at the Kennedy School is former HKS student Mateo Gomez, who is a 32-year-old gay Colombian and a special agent for the FBI before he took his life in December 2022. And Mateo's passing has sparked a series of conversations at the Kennedy School and within Kennedy School student government surrounding how to best improve mental health on campus. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how Mateo's story fits into this course. Mateo's been been a big, big part of discussion at HKS for, for the last year. And in the reporting of his obituary, I spoke for a few hours with his sister, who told me that there was a class Mateo was struggling with, that he said he shouldn't have taken it, that people come at you aggressively, and that she, this was something that she had thought she had been thinking about for for the last two months since he since he had passed about about if if this class had something to do with it and upon further investigation and discussion with his partner of six months also an HKS student Luis Herrera we learned that that was MLD 201 exercising leadership what Luis told me is that around the end of November December Mateo had started isolating himself and that he wasn't being his normal self. Matteo told him around this time that the class, it was harming him. It was impacting him. Essentially, this class was of concern to two people close to Matteo while I was writing his obituary in February. And for me, having been through a loss of my brother to suicide, I understand that the grief process, which looks very different for many people, but can include this kind of constant thought of what happened, why did it happen, what were the signs, what could I have done, all of those things. Like, your mind is grasping at straws. So it was important to me that I followed up with this and spoke to other people about what their experiences were in the class. You've mentioned that this course plays certainly into conversations surrounding mental health at the Kennedy School. I'm curious, what's been Harvard Kennedy School's administration's response to all of this? We've been seeing some of these improvements in mental health from administration at HKS, including the recent hiring of Jimmy Kane as a mental health specialist and a caseworker who can be there for students specifically from HKS. Some of the HKS students feel like a lot of the attention on mental health resources goes to the college and are actually inspired by some of the organizations that undergraduates have established, such as our peer help rooms, like Room 13, where students can go at all hours of the night if they're struggling with mental health and are looking to work that into HKS. Another thing is just changing the culture of HKS in terms of mental health. A majority of students at HKS are international students, and that came up a lot in conversations about how certain cultures are very stigmatized against getting help. Just the nature of the student body requires that more attention is put on emotional well-being, especially in light of some of these unique classes. Thank you so much, Asher, for joining us to talk through this course and the stories you were able to tell through it. Thank you so much, Frank. Next, the results of Cambridge's elections for school committee and city council and what they mean for the city. And just as a note, our conversation was recorded last week. 
Hi, my name is Muskan Arshad, and I'm Cambridge Elections reporter for the Harvard Crimson. Hey, I'm Jack R. Trapanik, and I'm the government relations reporter for the Harvard Crimson. Hi, my name is Sally Edwards, and I'm the Cambridge education reporter for the Harvard Crimson. Thank you so much, Jack, Sally, and Muskan, for joining us. I wonder if we could start with a broad look at the challengers and incumbents this year. Who are the winners and who are the losers? After this round of elections, we see that Cambridge has moved sort of more towards the center. The three councillors in the past who were very progressive decided not to run for re-election. So this time around, all six incumbents retained their position on the city council while we were sort of looking at what the three would be replaced with. One of the councillors that replaced the three outgoing ones was former councillor Giovanni Sobrino Wheeler, who was quite progressive and was involved in the earlier cycle safety ordinance and the affordable housing overlay. Another individual who replaced one of the outgoing city councillors was Aisha M. Wilson, who was a school committee member. And the third person who is newly in the city council is Joan F. Pickett, who has previously been involved in a lawsuit against the city to get rid of some of the bike lanes throughout the city. I wonder then if we could start right there with transit in Cambridge. What does this election tell us about what Canterburyans want or have indicated that they want by way of the city councillors that they've elected in this year's cycle? So bike lanes has been quite a contentious issue in Cambridge. The cycling safety ordinance was originally passed in 2019 and amended in 2020, basically calling for over 22 miles of separated bike lanes to be established throughout the city. Some businesses and some city residents believe that there wasn't enough community input in the process and it replaced a lot of essential parking spots and loading zones required. But the city contends that it's made biking a lot safer, a lot less accidents, a lot less crashes, more safety, while contending also that community input has been taken throughout the process of constructing these bike lanes in each of the individual neighborhoods. So from the newly elected Cambridge City Council members from this year's cycle, what can we expect to see when it comes to transit in Cambridge moving forward? Right now, it doesn't seem like there's a majority of city councilors that would support the cycling safety ordinance and the construction of additional bike lanes. Joan F. Pickett has been involved in the lawsuit against the city to get rid of some of the bike lanes. And Aisha M. Wilson, although progressive, has not signed the bike safety pledge, which a lot of other candidates didn't sign, but it indicates that there might be more pushback than ever before on the construction of these bike lanes and the timeline that is allotted by the Cycling Safety Ordinance and its amendments. So another big issue that's emerged in this year's elections is housing. Of course, 70 percent of Cambridge residents are renters and the affordable housing waitlist in Cambridge has more than 20,000 people on it. I'm curious, Jack, if you could tell us a little bit about how housing shaped up as an issue during the elections. Yeah, so of course it's well known by now that the United States is generally facing a pretty big housing crisis, and Cambridge in particular, as part of the greater Boston area, is facing a very severe housing crisis that's resulted in very high rent, as well as home values, just merely by the fact of being such a great place to live, because as controversial as some of its features are, like bike lanes and that sort of thing, at the end of the day, it is like a wonderful, lively place that draws a lot of people, if not only also because of its institutions. So rent is astronomically high, you know, and you often hear people talking about gentrification, about watching their neighbors displaced, about not being able to afford to live here anymore, especially people who grew up here, who already lived here. You feel and witness the pain of yourself wondering whether you can stay here and watching other people not be able to, which breaks up the community a little bit. So that was a very pressing issue for voters. And you actually saw that, you know, the city does like a biannual survey of voter opinions or resident opinions. And housing was far and away the most important issue on voters' minds. Even the report itself called bike lanes, which was the second issue, a distant second or something along those lines. So given the importance of housing to 
Cambridge residents. Muscon, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what the newly elected Cambridge City Council candidates are thinking when it comes to housing. So the most hotly contested issue was the affordable housing zoning overlay amendments. AHO amendments would allow for up to 15 stories of height throughout the city. Basically, they were passed less than a month before the elections, and they were pushing for increased building heights, specifically for the building of affordable housing. Some candidates were very worried about the changing character of the city, while others were emphasizing the importance of making this a place where, you know, families and communities can live in an affordable way. Joan Pickett is one of the newly elected candidates. She was very concerned about the character of the city that would come from the increased building heights that the AHO amendments had allotted. Wilson and Sabrina Wheeler, on the other hand, are very pro-affordable housing. Sabrina Wheeler was actually previously on the council. He co-chaired the housing community during the original passage of the of the ordinance itself in 2020. And Wilson told the Crimson in an earlier profile that if she were on council, she would have voted for the amendments and that the residents make up the character of our community rather than the heights of the buildings. Thank you so much, Muskan. So Sally and Jack, both of you were on the ground at polling places on election day, talking to voters, getting a sense of just how Canterburyans were feeling this election cycle. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the voters that you talked to, impressions that you got, and just how people were feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was very much an excitement and a buzz. And even though it was only a local election, there still were so many voters who felt so passionately about the issues on the ballot and the candidates that they're very motivated to get out and vote. I talked to one voter named Harrison who said he felt that local elections were so much more important and so much more immediately salient to his life um, as compared to statewide or national elections. You know, you could see him coming out and he saw his like little I voted sticker and you could just tell that he was very proud of, you know, the civic action that he'd taken. There are many, many people who I saw coming up, riding their bikes to the polls, <laughs> jumping off their bikes, going directly and voting, getting on their bikes and leaving again. So it, it was interesting to see how much the issue of bike lanes motivated individuals to get out and vote in the cycle. Yeah, I'd say a lot of what you hear, especially from voters who say they don't keep up super strongly with politics, mm-hmm. is the issues that are directly visible in daily life. Hence bike lanes, right? You know, all of us came back from Harvard this fall, and it's definitely noticeable that there's a lot more bike lanes. You can see an experience, obviously, for driving, too. You know, it's very noticeable, the difference. So similar things, too, right? Like people talk about the new affordable housing overlay amendment, which allows for higher buildings and, and more density. And of course, nothing's materialized yet, but it's something that's going to be very visible and for that reason, I think generates a lot of discourse. So the elections for Cambridge City Council weren't the only ones that happened in Cambridge. Sally, you cover Cambridge education for us for the Harvard Crimson, and school committee elections were also this week. Curious you could give us a sense of who was running and just who's won out this time. Yeah, it was a really interesting election cycle. We had a lot of diverse range of issues um, that candidates were speaking about and also just a diverse range of candidates in and of themselves. So the school committee is a seven-member body where six members are elected at large, the seventh member being the mayor. And this cycle, we had two committee members who were leaving the council. One, Alfred Vantini, who's the longest-serving member in the school committee, stepped down from his role. And the other, Aisha Wilson, was elected to the city council since she was running for that. So that left two open seats with the seven challengers we're vying for. You had candidates like Richard Harding Jr., who had formerly served on the school committee, 
Society, Cambridge Public School parents who had been involved within the advocacy circles like Eugenia Schrache, former um, special educators, community members like France Pierre, who was running for both city council and the school committee at the same time. Voters came to the polls with quite a diversity of choices to elect for the six members of the school committee. You know, the four incumbents, Rachel Weinstein, David Weinstein, Caroline Hunter, and Jose Luis Rojas Villarreal, all re-elected to serve for the next two years, as well as former school committee member Richard Harding Jr., as well as Elizabeth C.P. Hudson, who really ran on the platform of strengthening STEM education, particularly mathematics. You know, Cambridge voters really issued this vote of confidence in the current school committee by re-electing all four incumbents who were quite ideologically unified in the race. So it'll be very interesting to see in these next two years exactly how these four incumbents and also these two challengers go on to craft the educational policy within the district. You know, some of the most prominent issues in this election were special education following the federal inquiry into the state's equity within the special education programs, as well as the discussions after the summer around the mathematics curriculum, particularly focusing on Algebra 1 for All in middle school. So, you know, we had three of the incumbents who were reelected, um, Hunter, David Weinstein, and Rachel Weinstein, um, all co-introduced this motion back at the beginning of this academic year, which would bring forward the proposal to establish an Algebra 1 curriculum for all in middle school by 2025. And in the run-up to the election, you had candidates who raised concerns with this plan, saying, oh, it's not fast enough. How is this really going to operationalize? Is this realistic? But considering that voters re-elected these candidates, it was pretty clear that they did feel confident that, yes, this is realistic, this will happen, and I think that sets the school committee up very strongly in order to be able to achieve this goal, which many, many parents, community members, and students really hope to see. So Sally, I'm curious then at the polls if you got a general sense of what voters were thinking about the school committee as they were going in to cast the ballot. Sure, yeah. So I was able to go to the polling site at Cambridge Ridge and Latin School, which is a really interesting experience because, you know, you obviously had these voters coming in for the workday, after the workday, at their lunch break, quickly coming in to cast their vote. So you not only had these voters coming in, you know, during their busy day, but you also had these students who were gathering around the polls. And, you know, even though these students, you know, couldn't vote, they were still very much involved with the process of the school committee election. You had the CRLS Student Council put on a forum for all the candidates where students could come and ask these candidates their own questions about their concerns within the district, a lot of which centered around teacher contact contract issues. It's been a very, very salient issue at the school, um, which from the students and staff who I've talked to has really overtaken the campus dialogue. So as I was waiting outside the polling place and talking to voters, I was also able to talk to some students. One student, Oscar Grittaker, a junior at CRLS, really made a lasting impression on me. He had said he'd attended the forum with the candidates. He had, you know, kept up with the race. And it was really impactful to hear him say that he hopes that adults who are old enough to vote not only exercise this right to vote, but also actively talk with students and talk with their kids about how they feel about these issues. At the end of the day, the educational policies that this committee passes won't have any real direct effect on the adults who are casting their ballots, but it will affect their children. So Sally, there was a little wrinkle in the race for school committee. Could you tell us a little bit about what that was and how that influences the race? So 
Late Thursday night, early Friday morning, we learned that Richard Harding Jr.'s lead was overtaken by a handful of votes in favor of Andrew King. So as of today, Richard Harding's 56-vote lead from Election Day has turned into a three-vote loss to Andrew King. We're still waiting for a recount, and official results will be announced on November 17th. But this is, you know, a very noticeable shift in candidates. Richard Harding Jr. had served on the school committee prior to being elected. He was very much a familiar name within the community, whereas Andrew King had never served on the school committee before, was a community activist, and, you know, has been very clear in his desire to abandon more institutional mechanisms like the use of the MCAS to measure achievement. King was notably also one of the three candidates endorsed by the Cambridge Education Association in this year's election. The CEA has been a very important part of the run-up to this election as, you know, contract negotiations between the school committee and the CEA have been a really big part of what candidates are talking about, their platforms, their messages. And so, you know, the shift from seeing this very establishment candidate in Richard Harding Jr. who was not endorsed by the CEA to shift as someone who's more unconventional, less establishment pick like Andrew King, who was endorsed by the CEA, is definitely a big shift. So if King holds out, then this will really dramatically change the way that educational policy is crafted and catalyzed within the district for the next two years. Thank you so much, Muskan, Sally, and Jack, for joining us to talk through the two sets of elections that we saw in Cambridge this past week. Thank you, Thank you so much for having us. (laughs) News Talk is hosted by Frank S. Joe. This episode was produced by Gina H. Cho, Yao S. Goldstein, and Frank S. Joe. Our multimedia chairs are Joey Huang and Julian J. Giordano. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Our president is Kara J. Chang. Music in this episode comes from freesound.org. From 14 Plimpton Street, this is News Talk.